0: off your device. That's soberlink.com forward slash T a M and let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the addicted mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin and I'm your host and we are on to the next episode. So today our guest is Jessica Dunez. And she is going to share her story of addiction, all starting with binge eating food in her bedroom as a Latina girl growing up in New York City. And by the time she got to college, her addiction had morphed into the beginning of alcoholism. And years later, even when she was state teacher of the year in Kentucky, she was drinking a fifth of bourbon a day and lying to her peers and friends while trying to hide her addiction from her students. Then tragedy hit. Jessica suffered through the death of her boyfriend, who she discovered lifeless from a drug overdose in his apartment. And that moment spiraled Jessica out of control and deeper into her addiction, nearly dying herself in the months after his passing. But despite all this, Jessica has found recovery and has been sober since November, 2020. And she shares her story to help break the stigma of addiction and mental health treatment she uses her platform bottomless to sober to share stories of people's recovery and continue to break the stigma of addiction she is currently authoring the book bottomless to sober five lessons on early addiction recovery for black and brown women so Stay tuned for this episode. But before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, click the subscribe button in whatever podcast app you use. And if you want to continue the conversation online, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right. Stay tuned for this episode. All right, Jessica, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I am excited to talk about our topic today. We're going to talk about the stigma surrounding addiction and mental health in the Black and Latino communities. And you're going to share your own story of recovery around that topic. And so let's just jump in. Let's hear about you and, and go from there.
1: Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for any opportunity to share. Hopefully, this resonates with someone who might need to hear it, either for themselves or a loved one that might be currently struggling. So, yes, I'm Jessica Duenas. I am a first-generation American. My father was an Afro-Cuban. My mom is Costa Rican, and I was born in the U.S., And in our family, which is really common among a lot of immigrants, especially Latino families, we really never address mental health issues, even though you could see them in different family members, especially addiction and addictive behaviors, especially surrounding alcohol use you know, there was just kind of like this unspoken expectation that you just don't talk about it unless it's completely blowing up in someone's face. And then maybe we use negative terms like just calling them, borrachos, you know, alcoholics or things like right. that. Right. And so growing up, I had certain relatives that definitely had problematic issues with alcohol, but they still showed up to work. They still paid their bills. Their kids still showed up to school. So nobody talked about it unless they got too drunk. And then, like I said, then it was just kind of like nasty name calling behind their back, kind of in a gossipy manner, but really never kind of asking into what's wrong. Like, why are you leaning so much on this substance? What's going on? And as I grew into a young woman and I learned even more about my mother's own past, you know, she is definitely a trauma survivor who never got to address quite a bit of what she went through back in Latin America and right, her coping yeah. strategies have always just been so problematic, but she, her attitude is, I don't have time to be depressed. I'm going to go to work.
0: Right. I got to survive. I don't have time yeah. to deal with these, these kind of issues. And plus we're not going to talk about them because there's a huge stigma, but I have to survive. So there's no room for this. That's what I'm imagining.
1: There is no room for it. And, you know, again, you know, coming into then the United States and having language barriers, you know, having language be a barrier to access to mental health support. And again, just this idea that I don't have time to stop because I'm trying to raise this family here in this country and we're supposed to be successful and we can't come here and quote unquote mooch off of resources. So we just have to power through. So what I found myself dealing with was, when I was starting to struggle when I was younger and I would mention, I feel sad. The response was go do your homework, go clean. There's always something right. to do, you right. know, and this idea that if I'm sad it's because I'm giving myself too much free time to have this luxury. And so, right. you know, once I got to college and that was where I was supposed first exposed to alcohol, you know, I latched on alcohol, like a lot of college students do with the really unhealthy binge drinking culture. And I got really depressed in college. And when it was time to like address the fact that my scholarship was kind of falling apart, we didn't have a conversation about why my scholarship, like why I lost my scholarship to Barnard College and why I had to like transfer to a local city school
0: just didn't talk about it and you were talking about something just earlier that kind of struck me it's like you know if you're an immigrant you you can't have a problem you can't have mental health issues because that's that's a drain and you got that pressure from the culture you know from the white culture to not have any problems like you got to have it all together
1: right right exactly and again because for a lot of us or our families you know we're feeling like we're you know, we don't want to take up space. That's kind of like the mindset that we adopt. Let's take up as little space, let's inconvenience as little as possible. Speaking up and saying I'm having a problem takes up space and it can make other people uncomfortable. So I just grew to ignore what I was dealing with and just keep powering
0: through. Power, power, just keep going. You can't take up space. That just breaks my my heart when I hear you say that. It's so that's so painful. But that's such a reality. I think for immigrants and in in when you come into this country, that feeling.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And one of the greatest things that I've discovered kind of being, being in recovery and being open and connecting to other, you know, sober folks, whether they're Latinos or Black Americans, one of the most common things that has come up is this idea that we don't have time to waste, that we have to stay focused on our goals. And for a lot of us, like if we're first-generation college students, and we're the first ones in our families to go to school, there's this pressure on us to be perfect, and there's this pressure that I don't have problems because, well, I'm the first one in my family to get this degree. I'm the first one in the family to have, you know, a quote-unquote career, and so we start to learn to really compartmentalize and ignore the issues as they're coming up because we're learning, we learn from our parents to power through and just keep going, to the point where we start to kind of like fragment ourselves into like the part of us that's struggling and we're ignoring. And then the incredibly successful part of us that stays in school and goes and gets the career, you know.
0: And that's what you were doing. Yeah. When you're in college here, you're like powering through.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Even where I had a huge setback, I didn't address the core of the issue, which was that my mental health was getting affected by my alcohol consumption. I just found a different, an easier route to get to my bachelor's degree. You know, it was like, okay, well, this didn't work. So let me just enroll in a different school program and just keep going. And the drinking didn't change. I didn't go into therapy to reflect on why I abruptly stopped going to class for a whole semester and failed everything. Nobody stopped to dig into the why's. It was just, okay, she's back on track. Let's keep going.
0: It was almost just like, we don't, we're not going to talk about these other things. We just got to go forward and we just got to move forward and we can't look at this other stuff. We're just doing that. We got to go. And so here you are. I imagine like you have all this internalized pain, but there's no room for it.
1: Absolutely no room for it. And what I learned to do was just drink through it. You know, once I graduated from college and I became a teacher what I would do was I was a really successful teacher. I made sure all my responsibilities were complete. And then once I was done with my lesson planning, my grading, then that's when alcohol, I made the space for alcohol in my life. And that's where I would find my way to escape. And over the years, the quantity of alcohol escalated, right? So in the beginning, maybe it was just the happy hours and then I would notice that at happy hours, one, there was one time somebody called me out on drinking fast and that was enough for me to say, oh, well, I can't be seen as the person who drinks too much. So let me flip into more secretive drinking. And so wow. after that, I learned to just kind of drink. In isolation, I made sure never to drink around my family. I made sure that my family never saw me struggling or drinking too much because I remembered my childhood conversations of how so-and-so is an alcoholic, so-and-so is a drunk. So when I would start to feel uncomfortable with how I was drinking, rather than address it, I wasn't ready to address it or face it. I started to just hide it and hide it and hide it. So, over the years, as my drinking increased, I would just keep that really far away from everyone. And what I would do, again, I would really dive into my career, knowing that I'm the first one in my family to do this. I'm the first one to go to school. And I wouldn't re- tell anybody. And I just excelled professionally, but internally, I struggled an incredible amount.
0: It just sounds like an intense amount of pressure. On you, not just from your family, from the culture um, uh you know from from all of that, just like pushing you, not having any room to to be human like there's no room to be human here.
1: no, there literally was no room for me to be human and essentially, what kind of got me to my breaking point was that my tolerance got up to the point where I was consuming a fifth of alcohol a day, which, That's 17 drinks, right? In a fifth of alcohol.
0: And after about a year,
1: a lot, a lot. And about a year into drinking that much, I developed alcoholic liver disease, which now has resolved itself because I abstain 100%. I've been alcohol-free since almost two years, November of 2020. But when I was hit with alcoholic liver disease, that was when I realized something had to change. But again- I didn't feel safe telling anyone that this is what I was dealing with because it's just so culturally unacceptable to be, and quote unquote, an alcoholic. So I secretly went to rehab and I just said that I was having some depressive issues. I just made it sound really light that nobody heard from me for a few days, Um, but I actually went to detox quietly. And I did detox and I got out and I didn't tell anybody that that's where I had been. And I um, started to attend at that time 12 step programs, not telling anybody that that's what I was doing. And I was okay, but I had gotten into a relationship with another person in recovery. and his drug of choice was opiates. And when the pandemic hit, he relapsed, passed away. and then I relapsed on alcohol. And at that point, that relapse was so strong. And, you know, it was eight months long of just kind of spiraling in and out of hospital settings where I couldn't hide anymore that this was my big secret. Like, I couldn't keep up the professional facade, the like model teacher. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And so at that point in November of 2020... I decided to come forward and tell everybody that I had been struggling with alcohol addiction all these years. And yes, I was even like the 2019 Kentucky State Teacher of the Year while drinking a fifth of alcohol. And I was like, I have did all these amazing things really well for others, but I could not take care of myself. And now I'm stepping forward, speaking up and choosing to take care of myself. And I don't care <laughs> If anyone in my family is ashamed of me, I don't care. Like, I was just like, I don't care. I wash my hands of it.
0: I'm just amazed at your courage to to do that and to go against all of these cultural learnings to advocate for people who are hurting and in pain and specifically in the Latino culture and for people of color to to be able to say that and bring hope to people. Just it's an amazing amount of courage, especially like all the, the pressure that you felt to to not to be perfect.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I think it really got to the point for me where I was like. The only way I can get better is by casting off the stigma and not buying into it. Right. And, you know, for some people, they might look at it as though I'm rejecting norms or rejecting traditions. And maybe that's what it is. I also like to think of being open about this journey as a way of changing the narrative, bringing awareness and kind of changing the conversation in different communities about mental health, you know, Yeah. Because I what think was that, it like
0: that's... for your your yeah a- absolutely I, I want to get into that too because I think I think we need to talk about that but what was it like for your family who you know they you had this like very secret addiction secret mental health issues if that makes sense and now mm-hmm. you're you're bringing them to your family you're bringing them into the light which goes against all of those cultural learnings
1: it was hard for sure. I think for some of them, like my sister, who I'm very close to, she wished that she knew. And, you know, and in retrospect, she wouldn't have judged me. But I think it's just that, again, you just internalize these ideas as, fact and as true and so i just didn't feel safe really going to anyone and you know she's the person i'm closest to today but i remember her just saying like i wish i knew you know and i've had these conversations and online spaces with other folks of color black folks latino folks and you know they'll say things that they've experienced these huge losses in their family and you know after the funeral people are like man if only we had known and then the idea is well nobody made it a safe space to talk about these things so whoever was suffering was just suffering silently until something terrible happened so it was really hard for some of my family members when they realized that like i was basically kind of just like lying to them the whole time for sure thankfully after i decided to just be out and open um everybody was actually really receptive and genuinely pretty proud, at least from what I engage, you know, I've definitely had quite a few relatives privately confide in me now about their own issues with alcohol. A couple of them have actually since quit drinking and they'll like, let me know, but it's like, so now we've created this like private little, at least some sort of support network that wasn't there before. So I feel like it's definitely only been positive because at least now whoever in my family is struggling whether they realize it or they're open about it they know they're not alone because they know that hey jessica has been really open about it
0: right you took that risk and shared that and and gave that gift to all these other people that needed to know they weren't alone and it's just incredible to hear how you you changed that
1: yeah, I'm, I'm really glad. I'm so glad that I did it. And I didn't realize how powerful it was going to be for other people or how necessary, you know, someone like myself needed to be in terms of being vocal and open about recovery. But I, I wouldn't do it any other way at this point. You know, I think that it's been incredibly empowering to me, but I didn't realize how many people it would help just by being open about it.
0: And just talking about it and, and sharing, sharing the story.
1: And one of the other things that, you know, that I wanted to just kind of shed some light on and talk about too, just again, in both my experience growing up and then being a woman in recovery and connecting with others over the past two years is that there was a time that I thought that like some of the stigma was something that maybe applied only say in the Latino community But as I grew my connections with other sober folks, I learned a lot about this being an issue in other populations of color, too, especially in the Black community. So that has been a really interesting conversation that I've had with other folks, especially for me, having been a public school teacher and working with so many students who are African-American That was one of the big things that had also come up, the stigma surrounding mental health support in those communities as well. So, you know, for me, it's important, you know, having these conversations and having, you know, conversations across cultures because of the fact that, you know, it's very easy to think that we're alone in these boats. But then when you talk to people from different experiences, there's a lot of very similar currents that occur.
0: Can you talk about some of the specific issues that people of color face when getting treatment? Because a lot of treatment centers are very kind of white-centric. Mental health is white-centric. And I, I imagine that there's a lot of issues there that people of color face in just getting access to care that's sensitive to the all these cultural parts and pieces. And I would love for you to talk about that.
1: Sure, definitely. So in terms of just adequate health care, you know, one of the things that we can kind of like historically see is access to equitable care is difficult, especially if you are, say, of a lower income or you are Black, brown or, you know, in the BIPOC, Black, indigenous, people of color community. And so sometimes, for example, what can happen is that somebody may go seeking care And they may just report the physical symptoms that they're feeling, but these physical symptoms are a manifestation of some sort of emotional disorder, but there isn't enough digging and enough asking. So people of color are just getting, say, prescribed medications to just address a symptom. Versus getting better or more thorough care where they're being asked about like what's going on, if they've had a psychiatric evaluation, things like that. But there's also just the stigma. Like I would, I read an article recently that basically said that stigma is like the number one barrier to adequate mental health care for Black communities people of color in general, because of the fact that there's so many ideas that, you know, different populations feel that they're supposed to, you know, perform at a certain level in this country, you know, that they can't take up space, that, you know, they can't, that they're already kind of like, quote unquote, an inconvenience. And so just asking for adequate care can become a really difficult thing.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine, too, just the access to care, but also trying to get care and facing that, you know, systematic racism, too, that kind of is in our culture as well. So here you go to get care, and then you got to face this other part or or maybe a provider not understanding that piece. And so the person of color can't bring that up or talk about the trauma that they face around those kind of issues. That can totally impact mental health and how we are in the world as human beings. Yes.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um recently so in on my page and my platform on Bottomless Silver, I have a book club and we have been reading The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. And one of the really important things that's highlighted in the Body Keeps the Score is how people are diagnosed. And you basically tend to get diagnosed how you're perceived. And so in one way it's culturally it's In your culture, it's acceptable to speak a certain way, conduct yourself a certain manner, but you face a doctor that has no cultural competency, that doctor could completely misdiagnose you because of assumptions that they are coming with, right? And so things like that are really important to be mindful of in healthcare, especially in mental healthcare.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's so critical, and I'm glad you're giving a voice to that because that happens a lot. And then people get these diagnoses that don't match them based on someone's prejudice and, and uh, not understanding their own biases.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Wow. And so, I mean, I just think this is such an important topic to talk about, to to advocate for. And it sounds like that's, that's one of the big things that you're trying to do here.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned it earlier that I think, again, in terms of fighting the stigma and it's being open and for people who are of, you know, different populations of color to speak up about their experiences, the people who can to do so, because it really helps change the narrative for our different communities around mental health. Because, again, there's this idea of, oh, I'm going to go see the lady if, you know, we're talking about going to see a therapist or I don't need to go to a therapist, I've got church. And, you know, there are things that they have worked maybe for our grandparents, our parents, our aunts and uncles. But for today, we also just need to bring in the variety of resources into these conversations that it's okay to go to church like your family did. And it's okay to go speak to a therapist. You know, I think that there we don't have to divide these things. We don't have to say you go to church or you go to a therapist. I think that culturally our communities have to work on building this acceptability of it's okay. Like, yeah, so-and-so they go to a therapist and that's great. And they're still a healthy individual. And they're an active and involved community member. So I think the more people like me that speak up, the more of us that there are, the more that folks like us can realize that it is okay to have these conversations. It is okay to have these needs and address them. And that there really is nothing wrong with someone realizing that they need help and addressing it. Because what keeps happening is we don't have these conversations among these different communities. And then you have people suffering in silence because they've been told they're not supposed to address it. And what happens, we turn to numbing ourselves, right? Especially with alcohol, that's the most frequently used drugs, but other things too.
0: Right. And, and I think in the mental health field, we just have to put a lot of effort into having these cultural competencies so we can understand all these undercurrents that go on so that, you know, the people that come and get our care, we can help them wherever they are and and have an appreciation for these experiences so that, you know, we can, we can help better.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: What was it like getting help and starting to get support?
1: Getting help, it was, it's was it been interesting. I think one of the greatest takeaways that I've had about recovery these past two years is that things are constantly evolving and what works for you at one point does not necessarily have to be like what you do in the end. So when I started, I did go to treatment and I did take psychiatric medications to start. And I also participated in a 12-step program and therapy. And then over time, my support system now, my community, has actually become a mostly online community versus, say, a 12-step community. So I don't regularly attend a 12-step program anymore. But I have made friends pretty much like around the country and some even across the globe just because I've been so open, say, on Instagram where, you know, someone comments on something and it becomes a full-blown conversation and a friendship. So yeah. that's essentially kind of like where my support has grown into. But for me, the psychiatric medications were so critical to start. I was diagnosed in 2020 once I decided to get help with um, bipolar 2 disorder. So for those who are listening, bipolar 2 does include the episodes of depression, but not so much manic episodes.
0: Right, right. So just
1: to give the the listener some context. And so I did address that initially with medication because the doctor was just like, to be honest, you've gone through so much, so much trauma and you haven't done therapy yet. You haven't done any work yet. It would be good to give yourself like a clean slate to start doing the work that you're going to do. And then you can reevaluate later on if you choose to be on medications or not. So essentially, I use medications to help me just transition off of being off of alcohol. And I use them for a year and a half while I did a lot of deep therapy, while I participated in support groups and things like that, you know, address my diet, my exercise, my nutrition, everything. And then I slowly wean myself off. And so far, I feel good. And I'm totally open to going right back on anything if I feel like I need it. But I just wanted to give myself Every opportunity to be successful at being alcohol free.
0: So it's it, you made a, a, a complete transition from being really secretive about this whole thing, hiding it, to kind of it just had to blow up, so to speak, to being really open about it and just sharing your story.
1: Yeah, and I I honestly think that that's what saved my life. I mean. When I decided to come out and be open with it, what I did actually, I wrote an op-ed article for the Courier Journal newspaper, which is based out of Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I taught, and I was the state teacher of the year. Where I said everything that I, you know, told my story, and I mean that article basically became viral, and it spread so much, and then it even ended up. I ended up on Red Table Talk with Jada Pinkett Smith because somebody who worked there, one of the producers, happened to read the article, and they invited me on the show. And one of the things that I said to her and her family on the show, which I will always repeat, is just that I was basically dying until I opened my mouth. And then once I spoke up, that was the switch that really freed me. Because at that point, there was no, the stigma wasn't holding me back. There was no fear. Whatever fears I had, I was basically telling them, I don't care. These fears are not real. I need to live a better life and I deserve a better life. And that's really what I've acquired since being open and honest about
0: it. I love that statement. You know, it's like opening your mouth and and sharing your story. And part of the one of the things that you've done is launched your blog, Mm
1: -hmm. Bottomless
0: to Sober. Right. Can you can you talk about doing that and, you know, sharing that story and sharing the stories on there? Because that is really cool.
1: Yeah. So Bottomless to Sober, I came up with it probably around January of 2021. So I just had a few months of recovery. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I had to deal with was grief, because as I stated, my boyfriend died in April of 2020 from a drug overdose. And that was so devastating. And one of the hardest things to do was finding a productive way to manage that pain. One of the things, his name was Ian. One thing about him that was a beautiful thing was that he was always really open about his challenges with opiates he was a veteran was injured and became addicted after a war injury I always admired that about him that he didn't care who knew his story he always said it and he always believed that he would help someone even if he was struggling that him talking about what was hard for him would help someone else and so I decided that that was how I was going to honor him and help me like use the you know be constructive with the grief And so I decided that I would create this website in honor of his memory and his way of always telling his story. So essentially what I do is it's morphed over, it's almost two years now. So, you know, in the beginning I was interviewing people and writing their stories and then sharing them and that got overwhelming. So then what I started doing was either I was writing my own just random things I was sharing like your average blog or I invite people to share or people come across it and they're like, hey, can I write something for you? yes, please do. And then people share. So essentially, it's kind of just become a hodgepodge of different people's stories that they want to share about themselves. Some people share something like very small and simple. Um, Recently, I had a few folks volunteer to share like letters to their younger selves that they wrote. And essentially, it's just been a really just a positive site where I feel like people can go and just Get a sense of other people's experiences. And, you know, and I'm not particular about what your recovery looks like. If you have recently had a stumble or a relapse, I don't care. It's really just about connection. Cause that's one of the big things, right? That we hear that saying often that connection is the opposite of addiction. And ever since I chose to connect by telling my story to whoever feels like hearing it, that has literally worked to clear my addiction. I think as long as I keep talking, the longer or the farther away I'll stay from a drink.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What about, you know, as you started to get into recovery and get help, what were some of the unique challenges as a Latina woman trying to seek mental health care? Yeah. What are some of those unique challenges that you faced?
1: I think for me, some of those challenges that I faced in particular, sometimes, again, my family was supportive, but then also having these conversations about, say, medication, because again medication can be a very uncomfortable subject for a lot of people. And like, well, do you really need that? You know, like dealing with those conversations and having the resolution or just being comfortable enough and saying, yes, I do need this right now, you know, so like, no, I'm, I am going to take this or, you know, going to events that historically involve a lot of drinking and having the drink put right in my face. And I'm like, no, I don't want it. No, thank you. A lot of people are responsive to it. And then you do still have some people that have subtle, are suddenly like, well, what are you saying? Why not? And me kind of really having to understand that other people's reactions to my lack of drinking really don't have anything to do with me. That's their own relationship with alcohol and just me kind of having to like understand that.
0: Right. So being able to navigate those new paradigms for yourself mm-hmm. to be able to like walk through that stuff in a new way and being able to kind of like I guess stand your ground and say, no, that's not for me anymore. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Right. And so moving forward, what what are some of the things that you you want to give back and do with all of your new knowledge, your new learnings?
1: Yeah. So essentially like what I've been really focusing on Again, is just really creating spaces and platforms for more awareness. Again, um, as like an Afro Latina for myself, it has been really important to find others who have similar experiences as myself. Just to have a place to go and relate to and vent to and also kind of creating those spaces as well. Um, I have started coaching people who are looking for support in their sobriety journeys. So I have started working um, with individuals there. And then also like I've started working on a book that hopefully I can get someone to publish yeah. it, but if not, I'll publish, but essentially it's called From Bottomless to Sober, Five Lessons on Early Recovery for Black and Brown Women, and essentially kind of going into this conversation on a deeper level of the stigma, like how things started for me as a little girl, what were some of those norms and right. the impact that those norms had and how I've had to work to unlearn those things these past two years. To be comfortable and to be who I am today in my skin, you know, like embracing my identity, embracing my ancestry, yeah. the traditions, but learning to integrate mental health into that, too.
0: Into the culture and, and into that yeah. to, to get rid of that stigma so that we can, you know, all of us as human beings can get help no matter where we are from, our identity right. or, or anything.
1: Right, right, Exactly.
0: Wow, I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of people out there who are struggling to hear hear your story from you. Thank
1: you. I'm I'm excited for it. I I've just, like I said, I feel very fortunate that having had the courage to speak openly about it, I've met some wonderful people. I have seen some wonderful people really like blossom and grow because it's a domino effect. They start to also come out and be open with their own journeys. And it's, empowering thing i like ever see happen
0: to be able to do that and and to see it and to see other people yeah And, and, and the reality is is you know i think as we we share these stories of trauma we share these stories of mental health issues we share these stories of addiction really realizing like wow everybody struggles everybody has some pain everybody has some trauma none of us are perfect none of us walk through this world you know doing everything right and and stuff but we all have different pressures from different directions on how we're Mm -hmm. supposed to be but sharing the story i think it just brings our humanity to to the surface right
1: Right. exactly
0: you know of what it means to be human and what it means to you know walk on this planet and deal with all the stuff that that goes around us
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah All right. Well, as we kind of get to the end here, I'd love to ask one question Mm -hmm. of every guest. If maybe someone out there is struggling, maybe they relate to you or relate to your situation, what would you want to tell them? If you could tell them one thing, what would it be?
1: The biggest thing I would say is I promise you, you are not alone. Like everything that you're feeling as isolating as it may feel in this very moment, somebody knows exactly what you've been through, but you won't know that if you don't speak up. So what you're looking for, that healing is not going to find you if you don't speak it.
0: Go get the help, share your Mm -hmm. story, which Mm -hmm. is your, you know, Jessica's like your courage to share your story. I think getting out is going to help so many people out there yeah. who will relate to you and understand understand it and get it and you're going to maybe give them the courage to to reach out. I think it's awesome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm very grateful to be able to help others.
0: Awesome. Where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you and they they want to talk to you? Yeah. Get of you.
1: The easiest is just to go to my website bottomless to sober.com and from there you know you there's a contact me page and you can find me follow me email me whatever you'd like to do
0: <laughs> awesome awesome i will put all of that in the show notes at the addictedmind.com jessica thank you so much for coming on to the podcast i appreciate it I just thank appreciate you. you sharing your story
1: thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it
0: all right everyone thank you for listening to the addicted mind podcast as usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictivemind.com, so check it out. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. I really do appreciate it, and I do enjoy reading them. It means a lot to me. And think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day, and I will talk to you on the next episode.